I was sitting down when I was in Africa, I was able to go home, and I haven't really missed anybody, and I quite like it here, it's nice and warm. And then I got to the airport, and Andy was waiting for me, I was like, oh, actually, I'm quite glad to be here. And this morning, when the kettle boiled really quickly, and I had hot water, I was really glad to be here as well. <laughs> and that was quite nice. Um, I've had an amazing time, and I just want to say thank you as well for all your prayers and your faithful support, and those that have sent me emails, and it's been lovely. And before I left, I asked that you pray that I kind of find myself there and I find a job to do. And I've definitely had work to do. I've been so busy every day, <laughs> and I haven't haven't really stopped. But also, I wasn't ill, and I wasn't overly tired. And I just I was so blessed by God physically as well as all the things that um, that I've seen and learned that I want to tell you a bit about now. Um, I was at a place called City of Rest, which um, was established about 20 years ago by Pastor Gome, um, who used to be a Muslim and then converted to Christianity. And him and his wife have been working faithfully for all these years. Um, and the centre mainly works with those with drug and alcohol addictions, but also those with general mental illness. And there's a, there is a particular trend between um, smoking cannabis and mental illness. Um, so a lot of our boys have both. And um, I guess the, the most shocking thing is just the extent to which some of them really are ill. Um, there's one psychiatrist in the whole Sierra Leone, um, and some of his practices perhaps aren't as up-to-date as they could be. Um, he's also on board for all sorts of health things and doesn't have the time to come and see everybody. Um, there's one psychiatric hospital, um, which I went to, and then there's at um, a city of rest, um, and that's really it. And um, so the, the kind of the facilities available are nothing compared to to what we have here. Um, but also like the education, the ability of the staff. Um, mental illness isn't so well like, known about within Africa, um, but are hoping to expand that now. Um, so city of rest is in the centre of Freetown. It's on a street um, which leads up to State House which during the war was bombed um, and, and attacked. and um, It was one of the only buildings that was left standing, the two buildings either side of it and the one across the road were destroyed. Um, the one across the road still hasn't been rebuilt and Pastor actually went to go and retrieve the body from that house of his mother that was living there to bury him during the war. And people kept saying to him, you need to leave, it's really dangerous. And he was like, well, where am I going to take them all? Where am I going to go? Because they stayed, they just stayed there through the wall while everybody else was leaving. Um, they've, they've been so faithful. Um, and then two years ago, Helen, who was my mentor, started about two and a half years ago, started working there. Um, and she's the, the, she's Dutch, so the, the nearest translation is a psychologist. Um, and she, she was a psychologist, she also kind of like helped run the place, she did everything. Um, and she's really blessed me in, sort of in her teaching and everything that she's shown me. Um, so there's 45 guests there about um, who live there in residence and then there's also occasionally day cases coming in. Um, so they kind of range from acutely psychotic, like I've never seen anything like it, really, really crazy, um, to like to lads that don't really need to be there but perhaps don't have somewhere to go um, or who, when they do, still struggle with, with drug problems. Um, so, so there's been quite a variety of things to see um, and quite a lot to do.
do as well. At the moment, I've been treating, I've been treating the patients with the mental illness, like stabilizing their medication, things like that. Um, but also treating them medically, and maybe I do a little knock on the door and uh, head hurts, my foot hurts, my thigh hurts, and I've got this, I've got malaria, and so every day I see all these hordes of boys coming in, <laughs> um, and some of the women that, um, that partly see their illness and partly just through trauma just want attention and love, and part of that is going and coming and seeing somebody that's going to spend 10 minutes examining you even though I know something wrong with them. Um, and they all love medicine, they love taking tablets. So I must have had the conversation, you have a cold, it's a virus, giving us what is going to help every day, every day. <laughs> so, so hopefully some of them will listen to that. Um, we also did staff teaching, so every Thursday I did two hours of staff teaching, um, which um, Helen told me about, she emailed me and said, like, I hope you can teach my staff. And I was like, um, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to teach them anything. I'm pretty sure they're going to be teaching me. Um, but it's actually about the medical, the medical side of it rather than anything else. Um, and that was fascinating to see like what people believed. And one of my most amazing moments was um, Alfred, who um, is one of the pastors there, who's such a nice man, um, told me we we were teaching about epilepsy and learning about it and what epilepsy was. Um, because there they believe that epilepsy is contagious. So if somebody has a fit, everybody runs away, they just leave them. And lots of the epileptics are kind of left to themselves within the villages. They don't have, um, it's really difficult for them to get jobs because people won't employ them. And so then it's hard for them to get the medication if they even realize that they can get treatment. Um, so there's sort of very much there's a stigma attached to it. Um, so teaching, to explain what epilepsy was, to kind of prove that it wasn't possible to catch it. Um, and then I went up country to McKinney. Um, and when I came back, Alfred told me in the next staff teaching that um, a couple of days after they'd been learning about epilepsy, he went outside and one of the kids across the road started having a fit. And all his friends just gathered and like ran away. And Alfred went over to this boy and called his friends back and sat and said, look, it's not contagious, you can't catch it. But sit with him, and they sat with this boy and waited until he came around from the fit. And like, how much more healing is that to wake up and have your friends with you? And I was just so proud of him that he'd done that. Like, how brave when everybody else thinks that you're going to catch this horrible disease to go and wait and to explain. So, like, that was so worthwhile to do that. And like, making you know that there's no point going somewhere and being there and providing all these things and then taking it all away with you. Like, why not make something sustainable? Why not teach? Why not help people? So I was really blessed by being able to do that. Um, I just had so much to do. Um, I think every day I'd go in with like a plan of things to do and then like 10 other things would happen. So some things continued throughout. Um, I made a medical intake form for Francis, who again is an amazing man. Um, and he quite wants to go and do his nurse training. Um, so I made up an intake form for him and a guide, like what to look for, what's dangerous, um, because their hospitals there are very interesting, and their diagnoses are even more interesting, and the treatment is ridiculous. So, um, so I thought if he could recommend some of the really simple things um, and be able to treat those, then they don't need to go to hospital and have six injections of goodness knows what. Um, and so I hope that I really appreciate you to continue to pray for Francis because. Um, yeah, because he is wonderful and hopefully he'll continue with that learning and be able to like, bless the boys. He, the guests say to him, they're like, 
why are you here? Like, you don't get paid enough. You've got a rubbish job. Like, we hate you. Go away. <laughs> like, they're just joking. They, like, they'll curse him and hit him, especially when they're, they're having bad days. And he's like, I love you. This is where my heart is. This is where I want to be. And he could go and get a really well-paid job. He's really articulate. He's really good at English. He could go and work anywhere and get money. And he chooses to stay in this guilty, this rather dirty, grubby life and work with these people every day that that curse him and hit him and like, yeah, he's, he's wonderful. And the people there, the staff have really blessed me. And like, even if I had just gone and not done anything better than spent time with them, I think that I would have been changed by doing that. Um, I also um, spent some time playing with the kids in my village, if you can go to the plan in a minute. Um, and just generally, like, spend time with my housemates and um, the women that um, I was living with all belong to different organisations. So um, there was one lady who was there for about 15 years who worked with Safe Alliance Against Slavery and Trafficking. Um, and they, they work against trafficking of children and prostitution and things like that. Um, and then the journalist who's working with her at the moment to kind of put some of these people's stories into reality. Um, and then there's a teacher there as well who's sort of helping to um, educate on all sorts of different things like training the teachers but also um, sort of educating on discipline systems that are consistent rather than just beating the children. Like we see the children walking to school and they take their own canes because the teachers don't buy canes to beat them, the kids have to take the cane with them. Um, and like not only do the children take their school fees and for their uniform and their shoes, they also end up being told to bring pens, like their pens to the teachers so they can mark their work. There's so many stories and so many things, um, so maybe like you'll see some of it um, as we go through. I've got a presentation in a minute. Um, but there are, there are just a couple of people that I wanted to tell you about, like specifically that I've worked with. Um, there's, there, there are some people on the PowerPoint. One lad is Elijah, who's 16, and he's at City of Rest. I'm not really sure why. Um, his mum was, was mentally ill. And she stayed there, and then she left, and Elijah stayed. Like he came to stay with the Gobies, and he's got his mum and dad, but he's not. He's not going home. But, um, there's complications with that. Um, so he's finally just started going to school, which is really good. Um, but he's wonderful. He he got to the point where he kind of just refused to speak English to me, and would um, would expect me to speak Creole, which really helped my Creole, but also meant that. Um, <laughs> I was, it was something that I just couldn't say because I didn't know how. So I was saying English and he repeated it in Korean. I'd be like, yeah, just like that. He's like, no, say it. <laughs> and he was just like having a little brother and I'd cheat him and um, like kind of just just play, just have fun, just like enjoy spending time with him and he'd make me laugh. And there's so many people. And then there's this girl, Alexander, who, um, yeah, he's just like lovely, just really, really nice. And every day, just be able to say hello to her and get her to smile back. And she's really lovely. And there's just like lots of people that, even if you have one conversation with them during the day, all you do is say hello to them, then that's that's really big for them. It's just to sit and chat for three or four minutes. And it was wonderful to be able to do that. There's a guy called Mr. Decker who. Um, Every day, I, 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 I want to go to my house. I want to go to my house. Every day, I, want, I, want, I need to go cocky in here. I've been cursed and stuck my dick. I want to go to my house uh, over and over, like literally all day. And so we've got to 
of his screen on the office, which I think was put there particularly to, um, to avoid him coming in and playing with. And he's such a nice man. But then occasionally he'll have a really good day and he'll actually talk to you about something interesting. And he's so nice. And like, it would just be amazing if he could be released from this view that somebody's cursed him and that he needs to go to his house to get wizards to sort it all out. And like, if he could just be who he is, if he could just be free to be the person that he really is. Um, there's so many people that need that kind of healing. Um, so maybe we could have a look at this now and you can see some of them.
um, and that she wasn't going to come out alive and she wouldn't take her medication. It took about half an hour every time we wanted to make her take the antipsychotics, um, which is why some of the labs are chained because they won't take tablets um, and so it's to help them if they run away or if they attack staff um, or like as punishment if they try to donate to a drug. Um, it's not a great system and it's not um, something that they want to continue with. Um, and that is something that Helen is working towards is to, to show the staff how to like how to calm them down, how to move them from that. And when they go to Grafton, then there'll be isolated rooms for them so they can be in their own room, in their own space, and be crossing there <laughs> until they calm down. Um, but the United came and it takes half an hour to give her the tablets, and then like nearly an hour sometimes to to dress or her wound. She had blisters from like the top of her neck down to like where her skirt had stopped the water. Um, and so cleaning there every day with somebody that thinks that you're going to kill them. Like coming towards them with scissors was not such a good plan. And then that after the first day. Um, but at the first day she would stand up, try to move around, she'd fight, we got hit, we got bit, everything. Um, and one one time she just sat and screamed constantly for about half an hour. I was about to be far away from her trying to change the messages. Um, and I laugh because now I can see the difference in her. Like she came out of the psychosis after about like 10, 12 days. Um, and it takes like two or three of us every day to change the messages. And I'm there on my own. And um, she was like, I help me. I'm not okay. And I was like, maybe I'm not giving you the scissors. <laughs> so, um, but she did, and she helped me. And then gradually every day that, that relationship changed. She was one of the first people I started speaking Creo to because I had lessons, um, but I was really scared to actually try it out. Um, so, so I tried it out with her. And then so by the end, like my last three weeks at least, like I was quite happy like chatting in Creo to the staff and to the guests. And particularly playing with like, the younger children who kind of who don't speak English at all, like it really it really helped to break down those barriers. Um, so she really blessed me, like through all of that, through all that she suffered. Um, and yeah, and you can see the story of like Bridget. Um, that that picture was we we went out for for a walk. We went to the park and like had a drink, um, and that was lovely. So it was really nice to be able to do that with her. Um, so yeah, there's there's lots of stories, and um, I'm going to move on to talk about um, the description now. Um, but I just want, whilst I'm talking about this, I just really want you to, to hold in your mind some of these people because I know it's so easy, like, we come back from Africa and we're like, we're not with people and they're amazing, you should see the poverty and nobody have food, but, but I just hope that some of those stories have made it a bit more real for you, that, that it's not just that there isn't enough food and the living conditions are beyond the people, but that these are real people with real lives that that laugh and have fun and like the girls do the exercise class and come and play and they enjoy the painting. These are people that have feelings and needs and expressions just as we do, um, but they always have the freedom to be able to do any of those. Um, so let's have a look at Isaiah and see, see what he says about it all. We're a bit worried about taking it after last and Like, this is not the first 
thing I'm chasing, like let's leave the chasing objective. Or there's, there's one in particular that, that it almost made me laugh. It says, um, have satisfied your needs and have spent some sort of lands and strengthen your frame. And there were days when I was like, yes, please, <laughs> that'd be really good because I'm hot and sticky and I'm trapped in a taxi with like a million other people. And the taxis there are really dodgy. Like, um, some of you heard the story that um, I got. I got trapped in a taxi for half an hour with this man that um, basically didn't like me because I was white. Um, and we, we all got in this taxi and he sat there, like, the taxi didn't even move, and he was just shouting rages and he's like, well, you're just going to Wilmer Force because she wants to go. And the taxi driver was like, but you want to go to Wilmer Force too. And he was like, well, yes. And that doesn't matter, she's white. You're disrespecting me because you're respecting her. And he went on and on. And so then everybody, but like, this isn't just Africa, it wasn't just like an argument between these two people. Like, the entire street got involved. So all of the two people in the front of the taxi were turning around shouting at this guy, and the woman next to me was shouting at him, he was shouting back, and like, but they don't take it in turns, they all shout at each other at the same time. So I'm sat in the car like, I'm not quite sure what's happening here. It's so fast, it's really hard to translate. And, um, and I sat there thinking, I know that I've done something wrong, but I'm not sure if I've actually done something or if it's just because I'm white. So we all get out of the taxi and, um, and they're all on the pavement. So everybody else starts getting involved now and other people start shouting and then another taxi comes and joins in and I stood there like, do I go? Do I stay here? So I said to this woman, I was like, what's happening? She said, just, just, just stay there, it's fine. So eventually we all get back in this taxi, minus the crazy guy that doesn't like me. And, and then they all start shouting at each other again. And I'm like, but he's gone, why, why are you shouting now? So it turns out then they were shouting because they were so angry that, about the way that this man had been, been speaking. He said to the woman sat next to me, I'm going to beat you the way I beat my wife. Um, and she, uh, it was quite hard to, to understand all the story because it was so fast, but she was saying um, that like during the war, this like group of child soldiers had like, come up and been like, I'm captain, do what I say. She's like, no, you're like seven. I'm not doing what you're saying. They, they, I think they had threatened to be in hell or they had beaten her up. Um, and she was saying it's just like in the war where people think they have the right to shout at you and put you down and do what they like. Um, and like the situation had been quite frightening for me, but, but for her to say that made me realise that actually there is such an underlying trauma within the country that that, that memory just suddenly triggered off this experience that she'd had in the war. Um, and they, I, like, I was so grateful to them all because they could have just kicked me out of taxi and left me. Because uh, it's like five o'clock at night and everybody wants to get a taxi. Um, so the fact that they stood up for me, um, yeah, that was, that was one of my being protected in a sunscorched land moments <laughs> after that. <laughs> um, so you can see that there are these, these verses that, that just make sense. But actually, I, I wanted to go through it more than just at a glance. That, Actually, this chapter has such a story of redemption and grace. So, Isaiah is a prophet, um, and this means he talks to the people, God talks to the people through him, and he's speaking in and around Jerusalem. So, Israel are God's chosen people, um, but throughout the Old Testament, all the stories show us that they are given over to abundant sin, um, fornication, adultery, idolatry, complete injustice, um, and eventually Israel divides into two kingdoms, so the tribes split, um, and you get Israel up in the north, and Judah in the south, with Jerusalem as its capital. So this is where Isaiah is talking, um, and Isaiah is writing about, about 700 
740 years, roughly, so it's that kind of time before Christ. Um, and really, he's trying to call the nation of Judah back to God. He's trying to pull them out of their sin um, to, to say, like, come on, there's, there's more to this. Like, what has God told you? Um, so the start of the book, chapters 1 to 39, um, they talk very much about Judah and Israel's sin. Um, and as I said, all the things that they were doing, the things that you can read about in the other books. Um, and then during this time, in sort of about, I don't know, maybe 15 years or so into Isaiah's writing, in 722, Israel get taken over by the Assyrians. So they get captured and taken into exile. Um, but Judah is left. It's not, it's not captured um, because God has given them 100 extra years to, well, we, they don't know it's 100, but he's given them more time because they had a good king who had, you know, had worked towards bringing the people back to God. <coughs> so the second half of the book, 40 to 66, which is where this reading comes from in 58, this speaks very much about comforting Jerusalem. And you kind of think, well, why are you speaking about comforting Jerusalem when it's going to be another hundred years until Judah actually falls. Why do they need to know this now? But during this 100 years, when Israel has been taken into exile and Judah still left there, they have kings like Manasseh and Jehoiakim, you can read all about those, and um, kings, and these men rebuild the pagan temples that were taken down by the good king. Um, they burn God's word, they murder their own people. So Isaiah talks and says that these things are going to happen and you will fall. So let's talk about what's going to happen afterwards. So these chapters all predict the inevitable fall of Judah. Um, and in a way, I, they're, they're written from when they're in exile, what, what is happening like, whilst they're taken away from their homes. Um, so this is where we catch up in chapter 58. Um, and in the first two verses of 58, for those of you that have the, the scripture, we can see that um, people seem to have quite good intentions. It says they seem eager to know my ways, and they ask me for just decisions. And that seems, yeah, that seems fair, like eager to know God, asking for just decisions. And, and it's not until we get to verse 3 that we see that really their motives and their heart are wrong. They're saying, why haven't God seen us? Why, why hasn't he noticed? We've been fasting. Why haven't you seen us? Why haven't you noticed? Why haven't you paid attention and given us all that we deserve for being such good people? But the time that they're taking to fast isn't being used to reflect and to repent and to draw closer to God. When they're carrying out these commands, they're doing it in order that they might be blessed, so that they might get something from it. They're not considering what God, what God wants. And, and we can see it because later in the Old Testament, Malachi talks about, about how they felt during that time. And they, these people, they're saying, it's futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements? How can it be futile to serve God? They're only saying that there's, that there's no need, that it was no point serving God because they didn't feel that they got anything from it, which suggests that they had the wrong idea in the first place. And surely service, if anything, is to humble ourselves and to not expect anything back. We're not called to be selfless so that we can receive. We're just called to be selfless. We're just called to serve. 
we're just called to be humble, not so that we might get something from it. Um, and verse 5 really spoke to me about their intentions. So verse 5 says, <coughs> Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself. Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is this what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? It's not wrong to fast. It's not wrong to be humble. It's not wrong to bow before God. But they're doing these things with sin in their heart, and they're doing these things without having repented without saying sorry, without actually coming before God and wanting to know him. And they said that they, they want to seek God, that they want to know him. But you question whether they do really, because there are so many ulterior motives. And like I said before, any work in Africa needs to be sustainable. And I'm sure you've all heard like the story that if you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. But if you teach him how to fish, then you feed him for the rest of his life. And this just made me smile because it's so linked with this. If we spend a day with God fasting and waiting to receive from him, then, yeah, God will be fed for a day. He will be fed on his word, but concentrated. But actually, if we come before him every day with the kind of fasting that Isaiah talks about, then we will be fed every day. Then we will learn about his word and his character and his love for people every day. It won't just be a one-off. And that's what Isaiah goes on to talk about. That's why he's talking about this kind of fasting. And, I mean, it says in Zechariah, what God says to the people, that you need to examine your hearts. What are your fasts really for? And this is what Isaiah is saying. Don't just meet with God for a day. Don't ask to be fed for one day. Ask to be fed for your whole life. So what, what kind of fast are we supposed to choose? Is the fast simply not eating? Well, no, because that's, that's what Isaiah is saying here. It's not just stopping food for a day. You know, otherwise, the people in Africa would be really good at this. You know, it's not about giving up food and sitting there quietly and looking like a really holy person for a day. Isaiah goes on and he talks about a light rising in the darkness. This is such a beautiful verse. Timothy's verse 10, it says, um, If you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. How can we be the light of the darkness if we're not prepared to go into the darkness? If we're called to rise like a light in the darkness, how can we do that if we're already sitting in the light? Can we all go on mission? Well, no. Can we all give up our lives and move to a village in the middle of nowhere and spread the gospel? No. Can we all give up our weekends to be homeless friends? No. But we can all listen. And we can all take time out to be with people. We can sit there and we can validate their story. We can sit there and cry with them. We can share their fear. And I would argue that all of those things are more important 
but walking into that darkness and making yourself vulnerable to hear about stories. To hear about what's been done to these people and what's happened and everything that they've lost. You hear snapshots of these stories like a woman who's raped. What has she lost? It's not just the humility and of that situation of what's been done to her physically, of how atrocious it is as a crime, it's violence. Emotionally, what has she lost? She's lost her innocence and her childhood, her dignity. How do you survive something like that? How do you keep going every day? And yet these people do. Surely we're called to go and share with that fear and to share in, in the memories that they have, like Auntie Shirley's, like in the trauma that's been done. Surely we can listen, even if it doesn't make sense to us, because they're crazy or because it's just too much for us to take in. I'd ask you to think who around you today is in darkness. Is it somebody who lives down the road who's London? Is it the homeless that you see in Worcester? Is it somebody at work that you don't like? Maybe you don't like them because they bully you, because they're insecure, because something happened to them as a child that they don't want to talk about. We don't know what darkness is, is hiding inside of people, but we are called to be light in that. Isaiah gives a promise in verse 12. It says, Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of the broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. If you look in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, you see the literal rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. Um, which is fascinating and definitely worth studying. But I'd also like to tell you today about another way that you can rebuild walls. Because I found through life, actually the last few weeks, that actually people are a bit like walls. They have parts that you build up that make them up. And it takes a lifetime to build up a character, to build up a life story, to build up a human. And it can take a few seconds to knock it all down, to break them down completely. And then to find people like this who are just left as ruins, who are broken and who are hollow and feel like they don't have anything left. So God, where are you? <laughs> what are you going to do with these people? What are you going to do with these ruins? What about the little boy that isn't wanted, whose mother is mentally ill and whose father stays away? He stays with his aunt and uncle. And Isaac hates everybody. He gets so angry and he steals. And sometimes he goes to school and sometimes he doesn't. But how can he love if nobody's ever shown him love? How can he be gracious if everybody around him is selfish? But there is one who repairs all. And there is one who repairs broken lives. There is one that comes into the darkness and takes all the pieces that you think could never be put back together and somehow manages. And more than that, he doesn't just put them back together. He promises them a full life of living water that never runs dry, 
this morning I'd ask you to think about the people that are in ruins, but also to think about the one who will restore them, who will build the broken walls. Some of us here need to be repaired. We need somebody who's going to either rebuild the entire wall or maybe just sort of add some polyfiller here and there for the cracks. But we are all called to go into the dark places. And we're all called to be that kind of light and to hold the hands of those that don't think that they can survive anymore. There's a song and one of the lines says, your courage asks me what I'm afraid of. Your courage asks me what I'm afraid of. And these women that I've worked with who have had unspeakable things done to them. These men that live in their own crazy world who don't really understand what reality is anymore and they're not quite sure whether the voice in their head saying you're going to kill them is going to rule over the one that's saying, here, have some dinner, it's okay, it's safe. When I see them, their courage makes me think, what am I afraid of? Why am I not speaking to these people on a daily basis? Why am I not walking into the darkness? What am I so scared of? When they live in that every day, why am I being too scared to reach out to people? When I have this amazing promise, why am I too scared to share that? So I'd ask that this morning, we've looked at these rooms, we've looked at these broken people, but maybe also we can see their courage and their light and how God is working in their lives. And we can use that to encourage ourselves and to show us and lead us towards other people. That instead of being called to obedience, instead of being called to fast in a way that is all about us, that instead we'll be called to compassion. And one of the phrases that really, really helped me was my time God, break our hearts, but help us not to fall apart. Break our hearts with compassion, but keep us strong enough to still go and to still give out. Father, I pray for Sierra Jane. Lord, I thank you for the message this morning from your word that there is restoration. Lord, that we can rebuild that city. And Lord, it might not be physically might not be with money, but it will be with prayer. And Lord, we say in your name today that there will be restoration in that land, that the broken people will be healed in your name. Lord, we just ask that as we come to communion now, that we'll be able to think upon your sacrifice, upon everything that you gave, that you have called us to be your children. Lord, but not only that you want us to be your children, but that you want to heal us and restore us and redeem us. Father, we just ask for all our friends at City of Rest, for the staff and for the patients, that they will know your restoration today. They will know your peace, they will know your joy, and they will have clarity in their mind of just who you are. Father, we ask all of this in your name.